are listening to AI and the Law, a show where a lawyer, a technologist, and a layman walk into a bar, there's got to be a joke in there somewhere, and discuss a recent legal case filing against an AI company. These are not scripted. What you'll hear are real conversations as we talk, argue, cajole each other to think deeper about the legal aspects of using AI and what people should be concerned about when they're using one of these platforms. In today's episode, we examine the case against Michael Cohen, former Trump legal advisor whose own counsel was exposed in a New York Times article on December 29, 2023, for using ChatGPT non-existent legal citations in a court filing. The interesting twist of the story is that Cohen himself provided those citations to his counsel. I'll let lawyer Joel McMull explain the details before technologist Shannon Leitz and I jump in to add our thoughts on the case. Today's court is now in session. Michael Cohen gave his then lawyer some fictitious citations that he had identified from Google Baird that, of course, were non-existent. And, of course, we revisited this issue in the summer when there was a plaintiff's lawyer by the name of Schwartz that got in trouble from Judge Castell in the Southern District of New York for serving up to the court essentially fictitious citations. Here, Michael Cohen served up these fictitious citations to his then lawyer, also named Schwartz, no relation for as far as I know. And it was Schwartz who submitted these to the court. And then interestingly enough, Schwartz is then subsequently removed as counsel. This woman by the name of Perry, I think, now takes over. From what I understand from the article, and again, we're referring to an article that appeared in the New York Times on the 29th of December. She was reviewing the docket, looked at these citations and couldn't, you know, figure them out for herself using, you know, Westlaw or LexisNexis, and then took it upon herself as an officer of the court to write to the court and explain to Judge Furman in this case that outgoing counsel had presumably served these up and they appeared to be fictitious. Joel, that sounds like something you and I have talked about in the past. It does. It does. And here we see once again that ChatGPT or the like, you know, has has impacted, you know, lawyers doing their work on a day to day basis and, and not in a good way. And you and I and Shannon are in disagreement on this. On who is the culpable party here? From my personal point of view, I think Cohen is the beginning of it and he should have known better as a non practicing lawyer, but as a a lawyer before, he knows better than just to hand documents off to somebody and say, here's the stuff. Well, I, I disagree with that for a couple of reasons. Number one is, is, you know, whether or not Michael Cohen is disbarred or not, lawyers are entitled to have lawyers. That is, licensed lawyers are entitled to have lawyers. I mean, and, and I understand why. I appreciate the temptation to put this at Michael Michael Cohen's feet, because, of course, he was at one time a practicing lawyer. But Again, I think it falls at the feet of the individual who's representing the party. And in that case, that was uh, Schwartz. 
before uh, Perry, David Schwartz, before Perry took over the case. I think this is an interesting one because we have a family lawyer. He's been disbarred, Michael Cohen. And he's done some Googling, for lack of better words, um, with Bard, which, by the way, is only, it's like not even a year old, according to Google. They released it last year um, after ChatGPT. It's not clear. I mean, it's a beta capability, all of these different things. But if we go down the road of someone who is working with their attorney for their case being held culpable for su submitting information to their attorney that was then not checked by the attorney, but just submitted to the court, I, I feel like that's a little bit of a slippery slope because we're saying, hey, Michael Cohen knew enough about the law to know this was a bad act. And if we, we do this, it's like, how, you know, where does that line get set for the actual customer of an attorney's services? Isn't the attorney who's representing that case actually in charge of making sure all the things that go to the court are actually checked factually, made sure that all the cases that are being represented are actually being part of the brief in a certain way? Like, to me, I, I just... I would hate for us to say that the actual person hiring the attorney should be found culpable for anything they submit to the attorney as part of this. So to me, I actually feel like the attorney here made a mistake, took something from their client, pushed it to the court without checking. And they have, you know, they can check it themselves. They can go into their tools. Michael Cohen being disbarred you know, if it was any other human on the planet at this point, potentially we wouldn't be having the conversation. But the fact of the matter is it actually does represent an interesting question because this is a former attorney who has knowledge of the law and legal tools. But was it on them to actually have to check everything being submitted? And I would say, in my mind, as terrible as this all is, I'm probably in that draw moment of I certainly believe that Michael Cohen should have said something about where he got all of this stuff. I don't know if he did. I wasn't there. But I do think that attorneys need to check what goes to the courts. And by the way, the Supreme Court is crystal clear on this issue. And I've had a chance to brief it a few times in the last, let's say, couple of years. Attorneys bear the brunt of their clients' mistakes. Now, there, there are exceptions to that. And let's take, for example, an exception in the discovery context. I represent a client. The client shows up to the deposition and it goes, the deposition goes entirely, entirely off the rails. The client, um, and perhaps the best case scenario, contrary to the, the advice that I'm giving him on the record, decides that he's not going to respond to the questions. In that case, blame may lie at the client's feet and the client's feet alone, depending on what the record looks like and how I'm counseling him on the record. So it's not as if there are no circumstances in which a client can be held uh, you know, liable for their conduct. In the case of the discovery setting, for example, often that may result in having to pay for the cost of the deposition, for example. But here, I think it's different because Michael Cohen, let, let's even assume the truth of this, didn't understand or didn't appreciate that these could be fictitious sites. He sent them up to his lawyer and that lawyer failed him by virtue of not corroborating that same information. And that's where that duty of trust, I think, and responsibility lies and you're shaking your head, Mark. You don't think you don't think that I, is I don't it, think but. so. I think you're you're both of you are doing away with context. 
There's no way that Michael Cohen did not know about the Stephen Schwartz case. That would be virtually impossible. And for him to do what he did, just it doesn't make logical sense. I don't know how somebody with a modicum of common sense could do that. Yeah, well, that's why I was asking, when did he actually submit these cases to the attorney? Because if it was early on, Schwartz hadn't been settled. Michael Cohen, or through his wife, appears to have communicated to David Schwartz on November 25th of this year. Now, that's relevant because it's after the Schwartz decision. That's the, right. The Southern District of New York. And in his email of Saturday, November 25th, he emails his lawyer saying, here is a recent example of Second Circuit Court decision granting early termination of supervised release. And he includes some of these citations that it appears the court, at least one of them, United States versus Foguera Flores, that the court, that is Judge Jesse Furman, found not to be in existence. The judge found them not to be in existence. Yeah. So as I was reading the article again, it seems that the judge may have written to Schwartz saying, I can't find three of your citations. And Which that is why his personal attorney's involved. That in turn led Perry to say, here's what's happened. Wow. But all of these, all of these citations appear to have been communicated on the 25th of November, which is relevant again, because it was following Judge Castell's sanction of the other attorney Schwartz back in, I think it was August. So the question is, was he actually even paying attention to anything legal anymore? If I was working on my own probation case, well, yeah, I would check. But but, but think- he's not operating on his own behalf. Like he's not representing himself in this case. And that's in a really important he distinction. He, he, in a way he is, if he is doing research and saying, this is what I found. Now, that doesn't make him a lawyer, Mark. That doesn't make him a lawyer. That makes him an interested, that makes him an interested party. Uh, but it certainly doesn't make him a lawyer, because if it did, then his disbarment would be of no, me, of no consequence. Okay, uh, let's, uh, I, I can be swayed. I'm okay with that. What I want to do is move this a little farther down the line. I was about to ask. How often are we going to see this? I think you're going to see, you're going to see this balloon over the, at least the first half of this year. I read something, I think recently, it may have been been this article too, where someone out West, Eugene Volok, who's a sort of well-known First Amendment attorney, uh, he's a professor at UCLA, and, and he's written on AI and law. He's counted something like a dozen cases nationally in which lawyers have realized, I think usually not from their own doing, usually from judges running to them saying, hey, what's up with this? I think you're going to only see an increase in the short term. Shannon, where's, where's your intuition sending you on that? Oh, I absolutely think people are still using these tools. I'm not certain everybody's keeping up with the latest and greatest in AI and Milan. And so... I, I think that as much as we're really interested in deeply looking for these things, the average user and even the legal professional may not realize that these things can't be used in this way. Um, I don't know if there's any special training that's being sent out from the Bar Association to lawyers about what's happening with ChatGPT. That'd be interesting to know, uh, actually. 
but it, it is in my belief right now, I think it's going to happen quite a bit more. The, the yeah, interesting thing for me is I'm thinking it through, and Joel, you would be closer than this. I'm still looking at lines of responsibility. An intern comes in, you know, $25 an hour, $50 an hour intern. And this intern runs those reports and hands them off to the lawyer. Can the lawyer legitimately fire that intern? So first of all, it depends on what is the what is the training that the intern has coming into the setting. If the intern has no legal training, I, I, I think the the common sense expectation can't be that they're gonna they don't they don't know enough to know what they don't know. So in, in that respect, I think you're gonna have a problem. I mean, it's it's interesting. Now you're saying to what extent does does that intern have a retaliatory lawsuit against the lawyer or law firm? that discharged them for doing something, I think it would come down to what proper training and advice did they get when they walked in the door. Certainly, if they walked in, as my, as my firm is now beginning to roll out, and you know, we've probably been later on this than we would like to be, but the, the information we began giving our lawyers last year was that these AI models are starting points. They are not endpoints. Okay, They are starting points. So take those citations that the intern gave you or Michael Cohen gave you, and run them through Westlaw or whatever trusted legal tool we have and see if it checks out. If you're getting back, if you're not getting back a result that corresponds with the citation, then it's game over. You know, it's a hallucination. That's where I was going to go with it, Joel, is right. that it's not hard to verify this stuff. If you're going to. No, it's it. not. No, it's yeah. not. I mean, every law firm, every law firm, including a solo, you know, has typically one of two search engines. Uh, legal search uh, engines that they use, uh, and that is either Westlaw or LexisNexis. That Bloomberg also now has a tool, but you know you can pop these citations. You know they're, they're numbered; they they correspond to a single case. And if those numbers don't correspond to what you've picked out of ChatGPT or any other AI model, that's it. That's the end of your inquiry. You're not playing with it anymore. You you cross it off your list. I'm just curious about what he put into part for it to spit this stuff out because the prompt would tell you so much. We're not like getting the whole technology story here. We're getting the, the output that was submitted to a lawyer, but we're not getting the, what did he actually search? You know, and what was there? Because if you go to Bard, if it was recent, like if he did this within the last couple of months, Bard actually has at the very bottom, right where you would prompt, Bard may display inaccurate info, including about people. So double check its responses. And the other, thing, the other thing that your question raises, Shannon, is what kind of, I mean, I know ChatGPT does this. I don't know if Bard does it. What kind of disclaimer was pumped out with the citations? You yeah. know, this is, this requires... We advise you to contact a lawyer to verify the content of what, you know, like one of those, which I know Chad B, Chad GPT does. But is he, that's the thing that's interesting to me is, did he share the citations without the context of where he got them? That's very interesting because as a lawyer, if you were being trained about Chad GPT and things like that, right? That I think might be interesting. So, you know, I, that's why I said I'm kind of this weird draw moment. If you look at the technology answer here, and it's, you know, did Michael Cohen send a leak to the Bard conversation he had to the lawyer? Or did he just copy paste those few cases to the lawyer? 
And and then I think like I understand a little bit more of Mark's side to this, but just from a I think a sense of what's right and wrong and a slippery slope argument on the legal side. Like I'm not a lawyer, but I'll just say like I would hate for humanity to suffer that atrocity, especially as we're gonna see more cases like this. And so to me, like if I look at the whole thing technology from a technology vantage point lens. There's so much more to it that happened. Like, you're not just talking about he went to Google and typed in a phrase or put in a case he knew about. He went to Bard and he had to have a conversation with Bard to get anything out of it. And that's not going to be an easy thing. Like, if you gave, if you just put in, give me three legal cases that proves parole has been reduced, you're not going to get anything out of Bard. So something this man did actually produced those three cases. And now the question is like, how far did you have to go? And why don't you Bart pump out three fictitious legal cases still? Like, what's going on with the folks at Google? Why would you allow that to happen? Uh, especially after the Schwartz case. Like, aren't they keeping up with what's happening in AI and law? Like, or, are they, are they, or, or do they really care? And they're covering themselves with their disclaimer, which, as we've discussed, may not have been forwarded along to, what is it, David Schwartz in this case? Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. the other thing is like, how much do you have to send over for that? I, but I, 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 I'm just going to say technology real quick before you get to it, Joel. Technology-wise, my question is, why are we still seeing this in the technology itself? And and how would you actually get a lawyer to know this is happening? Because that's, I think that's the first question. Well, it's incumbent upon the lawyer to to research it himself. I mean, the person that files and signs those papers, it falls at their feet. I understand. Um, I, I'm inclined the, the way the article reads, anyway, uh, and, and the way that I would that I would, I guess, most easily imagine it happening was that Michael Cohen just cut and pasted the citation list that he got, and didn't send along any kind of caveat, which bared from what you're telling us, you know, would have published, and it was on that basis alone that um that schwartz would have then folded that into some sort of legal brief or or yeah something i'll just tell you i found a interesting artifact where michael cohen and his personal lawyer actually put together a statement that was sent to the judge i guess her name is dana perry and so if you look at that artifact it's quite interesting it has some additional information towards it but again, I go back to technology wise, like this interaction between client and attorney and somebody even like trying to represent what their case is about as a client to an attorney. You know, what do you have to do to go get an attorney to even take your case? There's a lot of hills to climb just to go create a client attorney relationship. I think there's still more like I do agree with Mark. There's some stuff in here that's not quite right. Like my technology bent just has me kind of queasy over the fact that a tool that has some level of understanding that these things are happening isn't creating safeguards and that the world's not actually blaming the tools yet like i still feel like the tools are pumping stuff out that's dangerous and i think that they should have to go back and train and create some level of governance one of the things (laughs) that shannon and i are doing on another show joel is called Win, Lose, or Draw. And I'd like for each of you to think about that right now. I'm not going to talk about winners. Who are the real losers in this? Well, 
Cohen ends up being a loser by proxy, but I think the biggest loser would be David Schwartz. And, 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 and let me qualify that. To the extent that there's going to be punishment, i.e. sanctions that are issued, David Schwartz, I think, is going to be the one who is sanctioned, not Michael Cohen. I'm thinking more in a broader sense than just individuals. Is there a certain class of worker that's going to be affected by this? Yeah, lawyers. I mean, we do ourselves, lawyers generally do ourselves no service uh, with this because it makes it look like you know, th there's a degree of incompetency that I think in just reading the, the New York Times article that now people will, you know, the old adage about lawyers, you know, I think that is only going to contribute to what is already a less than stellar public perception of lawyers. So here's who are the losers? Well, I still think that there's going to be some future losers. I think anyone using these technology stats without really understanding that they can produce hallucinations and misinformation. And when the engines aren't actually putting any governance into them, we're going to see future losers. So I, I think there's that. I think in this case, I feel for Mr. Schwartz, but at the same time, you can see on the facts of, of just the addendum that was sent over by the Perry Law Firm. It's very interesting to me because I think we see in here that client who thinks they're doing something good on their behalf, who thinks that it's a super powered search engine, Bard, is basically relying on, I, get, I go back to, they're relying on technology that basically still bears data symbols that's actually produced free out there. But here's what's really interesting to me, too, is on the loser side of this, these folks still have to sign up for this stuff. Not like it's just freely out there, open to the world. They're actually having to sign up. They know kind of what they're signing up for. But I, I do think that the technology stacks are also losers because they're not educating their users. And they're not putting enough governance in for things that are becoming mistakes. And that, to me will be a downside on the technology stacks. We'll stop trusting them for the things that are actually interesting. And that, I think, is the gravest of losses. That's a great point. I mean, you have to, you, know, you raise a question now, and you did it a few minutes ago, too, which is, why are these errors still occurring in the technology? Why has this technology been so slow? Particularly as it relates to just, just forget services generally. Let's just talk, talk about legal services. Why have they been so slow to not cure... Uh, fake legal citations. I, I don't understand that. And admittedly, I don't know what goes into abating that issue from a technology perspective, but God, it's been... Why aren't they setting temperature to zero? Why aren't they starting with a default that's less creative? Like, that's really what we're talking about. And so to me, this is a question of policy and governance on the tech stack. And I think that's where users are being misserved from the technology side is they're not starting with the right defaults. So you are at a loss. You're not having to turn something up. You're having to turn something down. You have to try to turn mm. creativity down, right? And that to me is a defect we continue to see throughout most of the tech releases over the last few decades is that we continue to say, we want everybody to adopt. This thing is great. But if you turned it way down, would it still be great? Would you still have found any cases? And the question of that is, like, that's not what Barden was created for in the first place. But we keep basically seeing this mistake of what's built in. 
um, and how the defaults are actually set by these tech manufacturers. And, and to me, software manufacturers bear a lot of responsibility on the defaults they, they position. That adjourns our session for today. If you enjoyed the conversation, you can pay for our services by subscribing to AI in the Law on your favorite podcast platform. We're always open to hearing about new case filings. There's a link in the show notes where you can leave a comment on something you'd like us to look at. AI in the Law is a Sourced Network production. See you in court.